As Chris has told us, our reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 22, and we're going to start our reading this morning at verse 6. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel 22. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. He said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahiatub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahiatub, and all the men of his family who were priests at Nob. And they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Tiatub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David? the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household. Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing about all this whole affair. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doeg, You turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with all its men and women, its children and infants, and its capped cattle, donkeys and sheep. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Atiatub, named Abitha, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abitha, That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew that he was sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. And may God bless this reading of his word. Thanks, Chris. I'm going to give that my best shot, but uh, we all need help to understand God's word. So let's ask God to help us now. Let's pray together. For we pray that as we look at this passage, it's a 
horrendous story, but we believe it's also true, and it is truth. And so we pray you'd help us to understand what you want to say to us through this, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this morning we're thinking of the coming king. So it's 1 Samuel 22, verses 6 to 23. And uh, I love general elections. I'll uh, stay up as late. I would love it if I could have the next day off so I could stay up all night. But I stay up as late as I reasonably can and watch the TV uh, coverage, wait for that first result to come in, Sunderland or Newcastle or wherever it is. And uh, I love the the old swingometer, or it's a bit more complex now, isn't it? And uh, uh, what's his name, walking around with all the things going red or blue and so on. And I love the next morning. I love the drama of, of uh, uh, of Downing Street. And uh, I love the idea of the, uh, the Prime Minister going off to uh, uh, see the Queen and, uh, and all the rest of it. And uh, it's great fun. So uh, uh, it's, it's sad, isn't it? In one way, there's uh, the Camerons leaving Downing Street. And, uh, and then here's, uh, come on, clickers, let's have you. Here we go. And, then, uh, and I love seeing things like the, um, uh, the new Prime Minister going off to see the Queen and then coming back. There's Theresa and... Uh, uh, Philip May outside number 10 and so on. The rise and fall of prime ministers. And, you know, that rise and fall of prime ministers is, is um, it's very similar to what's going on here in 1 Samuel chapter 22 for Saul and David. There are more words here about Saul. There are far fewer words about David. Uh, but they're both here. And we, we can see the trajectory of each of them. So you can see the trajectory of David is clearly in an upwards direction. We can see the trajectory of Saul clearly in a downward direction. And we can see the coming king. We can see the coming king in David, the, uh, the anointed one. The one chosen as God's king, but not yet, yet on the throne. And we can see this trajectory of Saul in this in this path of, well, a trajectory of eternal self-destruction. And every time we look at Saul here, he's the king, but we're bound to ask, well, is that the kind of king we want? Is that the kind of king that I would want to have ruling over me? And the answer is, oh, when you see Saul, you think, no, it's not. In fact, when I see Saul, I'm thinking, I want the very opposite of Saul. And so this morning, we, uh, when we look at Saul, and we're meant to, we're meant to think, I don't want a king like that. In fact, I want the very opposite. And the very opposite of Saul is the king that we've got. His name is Jesus. And when you look at Saul here, the Bible is showing us, actually we're meant to see there that Saul is the antithesis of the king we have. He's the antithesis of Jesus. And then when you look at David, we've just got a little flashlight on David here in this passage. But when we look at him, and we're meant to think, actually, that's like Jesus, isn't it? He's a kind of like a prototype of our King Jesus. And actually, that's the kind of king I would want to have. And so Saul, you look at him in this passage, and you think, I want the opposite. Lord, please give me the opposite. And we thank God that he's done just that, the opposite, the antithesis of what Saul is like. And then when we look at David, we see echoes or precursors of King Jesus. And that's good. And so this morning we're thinking of the coming king. We've got two things. First of all, not your king, which is thinking about Saul. And then now your king, thinking about David. And so first, first main point, not your king. 
Saul here is failing and falling. He is in an eternally downward trajectory. Want a king like Saul? And we thank, of course we don't, and we thank God that our king is the precise opposite. Our king Jesus is the precise opposite of Saul. And one of the key applications for this morning is just simply for us to pray prayers of thankfulness to God for Jesus. So when you get home uh, later on this morning, or maybe this evening, maybe as you lie in bed before you turn the light off tonight, why not read 1 Samuel 22 again? And when you read about Saul, thank God that Jesus is the opposite. And when you read here about David, thank him, thank God that David is a pointer, a positive pointer to Jesus, a signpost to Jesus. So we've got here with Saul someone who is clinging to power. He's on the way out, but he's desperately grasping hold and hanging on to power. Look at verse 6. That's what this uh, spear is about. Now Saul heard, I mean, I, I reckon Saul probably slept with it under his pillow. Now Saul heard that David and his men had discovered, and, and his men had been discovered, and Saul was seated, spear in hand, under a tamarisk tree on the hill of Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. The spear is a symbol of a king. He won't let go of it. It is highly symbolic. And just as he is grasping that spear, he always seems to have a spear with him, doesn't he? Well, he hangs on to it. And just as he's grasping that, he seems that symbolic of him doing everything in his power to cling on to this, this kingship. And then you look at verse 7. Just glance your eyes over verse 7. Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you all, give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you? The implication is that, that I would do this, isn't it? It's, um, it's a bit like, you know, if he was doing it today, he'd be offering him a knighthood in the New Year's honours, wouldn't he? Uh, a knighthood to stay on side. By the way, do you know what all these letters are in the New Year's honours? Someone, I think I heard on the radio once, that uh, the letters after this end, especially the ones that are given to uh, civil servants, senior civil servants, they're given all sorts of obscure New Year's honours, aren't they? Do you know what they stand for? CMG, anyone know what that means? Call me God. Okay? Um, KCMG, kindly call me God. And uh, GCMG, God calls me God. But anyway, back to the point in hand. Uh, In today's language, what Saul is offering, that is what Saul is offering under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah. His authority is broken. He's desperately trying to cling on to it. And his officials, they won't tell him what's going on. Look at verse 8 there. Um, Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant, that's Jonathan, a covenant with the son of Jesse, that's David. You know, it's all falling apart. And in verse 17, if you read on a bit, and they won't carry out his orders. So he tells them that, you know, they've got to take out the, the, uh, the priests of uh, Nob and so on, and uh, Ahimelech and the priests of Nob, and he won't do it. Now, compare this with David. And you see, as David, his circumstances are going downwards, but his authority is growing. And compare uh, Saul with Jesus. Saul, who clings on to power, And Jesus, who let go of power as he left heaven to come to earth, to live here and to die for us. The precise opposite of Saul. Saul, the antithesis of King Jesus.
The next thing we see about Saul is that he's paranoid. He's paranoid. Saul's uh, uh, spear is not only a sign of authority and power, it's a weapon. And as we've seen, as we've been uh, going through 1 Samuel, twice he's tried to pin David to the wall with his spear. His spear is always there. And you see the paranoia of Saul just kind of oozing out here in, uh, in 1 Samuel 22, rather like an overripe camembert. That's why, that's why he kills Ahimelech and his, and his family, the priests. He's paranoid. And have you noticed, he won't use David's name. He just calls him the son of Jesse. He calls him the son of Jesse in verse 7, and again in verse 8, and again in verse 9, and in verse 13 as well. And it's a common trait, isn't it, when you're afraid of someone, you'll change their name thinking it will, you will reduce their power. It's also just pointing out that he, Saul, is in the tribe of Benjamin, whereas David, the son of Jesse, comes from the tribe of Judah. He's emphasizing the divisions, divide and rule. But underneath all that, he is just simply paranoid. It's one of the questions for our small groups this week. What was Jesus afraid of? What was Jesus afraid of? Not a hint of the paranoia that you see in Saul here. So third, there's this question of self-pitying. When all is falling apart, the best thing is to resort to self-pity. And this is a royal pity party. Just look at verse 8. Is that why you've all conspired against me? The man who had every reason for self-pitying is David here. He's a fugitive it's all going wrong here. Um, uh, but actually, you know, he's in a cave. In verse t- uh, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 22 and verse 1 there, it's all going wrong. But the one who is self-pitying is the one who's actually still the king. And that is Saul. And then notice his violence as well. Look at Saul's violence. The stories of violence shock us, don't they? So when we hear and when we see a picture like this, of Katie Ruff from York, murdered by, it seems, a 15-year-old. It is shocking, isn't it? And what we see here in this chapter is shocking. Doeg, the Edomites. The Edomites were historically enemies of Israel. And, uh, uh, and back in chapter 21, the previous chapter, in verse 7, you can see there, just across the page, uh, he was Saul's chief shepherd, and a Gentile. So what's he doing there? Why have you got one of your enemies in your council around the tamarisk tree there? What's he doing there? I mean, it's, like, it's, it's a bit like he's a, he's, um, he's a Bond villain. There we are, there's Jaws. So he, and that's, what, uh, uh, that's what Doeg is doing. He's a bit like Jaws. He, um, and he betrays David in verse 9, Doeg the Edomite. He implicates Ahimelech, verse, verses 9 and 10. So Saul then sends for Ahimelech, who's honest and open, a nice guy, and horribly and sadly and tragically naive. And he says, verse 14, uh, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? From that day, the first, was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. 
And then he ends up losing his life, along with his family and the entire village of Nob where he lived. It's an atrocity here in 1 Samuel 22. It would be called a war crime. And Saul couldn't get any of his guards or officials to murder the priest, verse 17. And so Samuel, uh, Saul orders Doeg to do it, to strike down the, uh, the priests. And so he did. It's a, and, it, and what happened to Nob was just a, it was a scorched earth policy. And then look at verse 19. He also puts the sword knob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle and donkeys and sheep. But one son of Himelech, son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. Well, more of him in a minute. But it's ironic that God tells Saul, conduct a holy war against the Gentiles, back in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, And here, Saul tells the Gentiles to conduct a holy war against God's people, against his own people, against those he was supposed to be ruling. And this is simply and frankly evil. Saul is setting himself up in place of God, opposed to God. He's here murdering God's people. Uh, He is as guilty as Doeg was. He's uh, become God's enemy. He's become evil here. The precise opposite of what it means to be the king of Israel. Who wants a king like that? You see, for Saul, it is some trajectory that he's on, isn't it? He's become anti-Christ, the total opposite of Christ, the total opposite of what he should be. Now, we shouldn't be surprised, because there are people like that in the world. There always have been, and until Jesus returns, there always will be. And God's people have have always been, in many ways, this is just a a small thing, isn't it? In in the big picture of world persecution of Christians and so on, and the perpetrators of evil, today, this week, evil people will be attacking God's people today across the world. Today, Christians will die for their faith. I just went on the Open Doors website uh, uh, on Friday each month, they say, 300, this is on average, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed. 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians. I then went to the Barnabas Fund website. Their headlines included these. Bloodbath in southern Kaduna, that's a province in Nigeria. And another one, Buddhist mob destroy rural church in Sri Lanka, despite police promise to maintain law and order. And another one, Christian women, woman stripped and beaten by Muslim mob, Egyptian prosecutors drop case. I had an email, I've been away this last week, I had an email while I was away about a Christian woman who had been raped and then forced to drink acid. Atrocities will be carried out against Christians, just so you know. And some of them by people who started out well, like Saul. 
who's now a destroyer of God's people. He's joined the ranks of Pharaoh and his postnatal care policy in Exodus 1. You know, the babies. He's joined the ranks of Jezebel, who tried to purge the prophets of Israel in 1 Kings 18. He's joined the ranks of Herod in Luke's Gospel. Jesus' birth and his postnatal care policy. But notice too, there's also and always a remnant. So Pharaoh's policy, Moses escaped. Herod's policy, Jesus escaped. Saul's policy, Abiathar escaped. Verse 20 here. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith says this. Nevertheless, there shall be always, I'll say this again. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Christians will die. You and I may die for our faith. But there will always be a church on earth until Jesus returns. So let's pray for the persecuted church. Why not sign up to the Barnabas Fund? You go to their website or uh, uh, Release International or whatever so you can pray. And we can also be confident in the face of evil. We know that Christians will be attacked and persecuted and killed. But there will be a remnant. The church, God's people, will never be wiped out from this earth. Because God intends to populate heaven. And he will do that with people like you and me. So, first of all, not your king. Saul is losing it. He's losing everything. He's losing his kingship. He's on that eternally downward trajectory. He set himself up now as an enemy of God, the anti-God, the anti-Christ, against Christ. And we thank God that we do not have a thing like that. Doesn't it, doesn't it make you just appreciate Jesus even more? Our Lord, he never clung to power. He was never paranoid. He was never self-pitying. He was never violent. He was never evil. Who wants a king like Saul? If you do, you're out of your mind. No, we want the complete opposite, don't we? And in Jesus, our king, praise God, we have the complete opposite. Not your king. Saul is not your king. And our king is not like Saul. So now the second main point, and more briefly, now your king. Well, we just begin to see here, just glance back to verse 1, for instance, um, that we just begin to see a new kingdom forming with a new king, a new people in verse 1 there, with prophets, verse 5, and with a priest, Abiathar, in verse 23. And it's interesting because you could define the church like that. We have a king, King Jesus. We have people, you and me. We have prophets, those who teach and preach God's word or do that in small groups as, as far as we understand and speak God's word to each other. And we have a priest, a high priest, King Jesus. And our King Jesus has lots of parallels with King David. Briefly, here are four. First, from the margins. He's from the margins. Someone wrote this once. Jesus had been born in a province on the edge of the map that no one had heard of. His genealogy contains various disreputable females who might be considered liabilities in any family. He worked as a jobbing builder where nobody would have dreamt of looking for him. 
He went to a cross, the place associated with God's curse, not his approval. You just don't expect a king to come from the margins. You expect a king to be born in our country in London, in the capital, to live in a palace, to live in comfort, to have popularity, certainly acclaim. And here's David, verse 1, in a cave. With a small kingdom, 400 people in verse 2. It's hardly very promising. Jesus came from Nazareth. Up north it was. He uh, didn't have a home for three years. He was a victim of hatred and prejudice. He had no money. He had no qualifications. His followers were working class lads. Some of them with problems. And there are lots of parallels with David, aren't there? Our king is from the margins. And that's not a bad place to come from, actually. It's not a bad place either for us to be involved with. It's a good place for us to go to, for those on the margins, for those less fortunate than us. I think it's really good we have the night shelter uh, in this part of the winter. That's a good thing. But how else could we be involved with the margins, someone on the margins this week? Could we get involved with one person to help them, someone on the margins of society? The next thing we see here uh, with our king, uh, we see at peace. He's at peace. David is pointing us to Jesus. Look at verse 22 here, the end of the verse, or the end of the chapter almost. David said to Abiathar that day when David the uh, Edomite was here, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I'm responsible for the death of your whole family. You can see a point disappointment in David. But despite the circumstances of being a fugitive, there's no complaints. He accepts the situation. He's calm and assured. Not the frantic and desperate self-seeking of Saul. What a contrast. And which do you prefer? And which would you like to be like? Who would you rather have as your king? Would you rather have Saul or would you rather have David? Would you rather have one like Saul or have one like David? Well, I can tell you, we don't have one like Saul and we do have one like David in our King Jesus. Very, very much like David. And then third, we have a king and we see in David one who suffers. What would you expect God's anointed king to be like? Like David. Now, how did David come to the throne? Well, he came to the throne. He's not there yet, but he's heading that way, isn't he? And he came to the throne um, through years of living on the margins. So did Jesus. David came to the throne through years of ordinariness. So did Jesus. David came to the throne through years of trials and tribulations. So did Jesus. Actually, there are 20 chapters here on David before he came to the throne. 20 chapters of it. In 1 Samuel, David, God's anointed king and Messiah, he just suffers. He suffers in 1 Samuel 22. While Saul was commanding this atrocity, David is a fugitive in a cave. God's anointed king suffers. We know. And that's central, isn't it? That is pivotal to our faith. It's the pattern. Jesus suffered. In Mark 8, 31, he said this. uh, Mark wrote this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he did. 
for us, for you and for me. What kind of king do you want? I want a king who suffered for me. I want a king who gave himself for me, who went through suffering and bearing my sin and who's now alive forever at the right hand of God the Father. And David points us to that king, our king, King Jesus, the coming king. It's wonderful news. And finally, just very briefly, we have a king who protects. I love verse 23, the last verse. David uh, says to uh, uh, Ahitab, um, Abiathar, sorry, Abiathar, David says to him, verse 23, stay with me, don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You'll be safe with me. I wonder, could anyone say that to Saul? You'll be safe with me. No. No one's safe from the man with the spear. Absolutely no one. But King David, calm, quiet, confidence, says, you'll be safe with me. Isn't that lovely? That's what King Jesus says. Safe with me. That's what we think of those Christians who've gone before us, isn't it? 2016, we look back and we think, yeah, safe with me. And as we think of those at the moment who uh, uh, are suffering and are pretty poorly and some uh, facing heaven fairly soon, and we can think of them and Jesus says, safe with me. Or as we're thinking of, uh, perhaps we've got particular challenges and so on for this year. We look ahead and we're uncertainties and so on and Jesus says, safe with me. Safe with Jesus. What a king. What a perfectly brilliant and wonderful King Jesus. David is the coming king. Saul is the going king. And in David, the coming king, we see great insights into the best king ever. Our King Jesus. I'm going to lead us in a short prayer and then Richard will carry on leading us in prayer. So let's pray together now. Lord, thank you so much that this chapter points us to Jesus in two ways. Negatively away from Saul, the opposite of Saul, and positively like David. And Lord, thank you for this wonderful phrase that finishes with, you will be safe with me. And thank you that that is true for all Christian believers. We are and we will be. And those who have gone before us most certainly are safe with me. Amen.